From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 260 of the Diz Unplugged, Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, and I'm joined by my co-host, executive producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, it is wonderful to have you back. How are you? I'm doing okay. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well. So are you getting any sleep? Is Uh, Rory sleeping through the night or anything yet? (laughs) No, no. I mean, he will sleep through the night as long as he is being held in one of our arms. Uh, Oh, dear Lord. uh, (laughs) Don't start that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's just the the teething phase is hitting him hitting him hard, and uh, it's hitting us even harder. But I mean, it's it, who needs sleep, really? So, <laughs> and you know, eventually, when he's off in college, hopefully not living at home, we'll we'll find time to sleep. Oh, yes, sounds good. You'll still be worried about him. It never ends the worry. Once you're a parent, you worry about them. Until you go to your eternal reward. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm t- hoping hoping he's a good kid. So as long as he, he doesn't do like anything it. I did, then uh, he'll be great. Isn't that what everybody says? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I remember, well, now they have cream or something that you put on um, the gums. And I, I have no idea what hmm. that cream is made out of that works, but they have it. And it's just for teething. But, of course, back in the day when I was little, parents put whiskey on the gums. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I think that's, that's frowned upon now. There have been uh, older people in our life who have said, like, oh, you know, just whiskey or rum. It'll fix the job. And I'm like, I, you know, I, I can't do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's one of those things I joked about, like, for years. And now it's like looking at it and it's like, okay, do you... Do you give it to him to calm him down? No, the wh- or... whiskey and rums for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Except then that makes me tired when I'm already tired. And then I have to tell Kylie, like, hey, I need you to, uh, if, if you can watch him for like the next two hours, then I'll take over after that. And uh, usually that's not popular. So, <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, tough well, time right now. It'll get, it'll get through it. But that cream helps. And I know we talked a little about. Before the show, we talked about teething rings and stuff, and those sort of help. I think, you know, the funny thing is I was going through the freezer the other day. I still have a teething ring in there from our granddaughter, who's 14 years old. The teething ring is still in the freezer. And I have one of her sippy cups that when you put it in the freezer, it's like a Minnie Mouse one. It, you know, has that whatever it is. You know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, to to stay cold, you know, it freezes so yeah, that you can yeah. put in like apple juice or something to keep it cold, especially here when it's, you know, 116 degrees. That was helpful. I never took it out of the freezer. It's I still mean, in there. It all in at this point. <laughs> I mean, the, it's not going to be much longer before potential great grandkids. So, oh, uh, no, she's only 14. Let's not let's not 
maybe maybe in another 10, 10 years, years or 12 30, i mean <laughs> let's yeah, hope i'm I still guess, around yeah you, i have no doubts you will be so <laughs> that would be a blessing to yeah. to see your great grandchildren so anyway well, this week we are sharing another show from my Disneyland at 60 series from the Dis Unplugged podcast, Disneyland Edition. In this episode, I talk about Disneyland's Tomorrowland from 1967. Now, many feel this Tomorrowland of Walt's vision was the best version. This was truly a world on the move with the submarine voyage, people mover, monorail, and then the rocket jet circling high over the land. I barely got that out. Uh, (laughs) There was also the Carousel of Progress, Adventures Through Inner Space, Rocket to the Moon, America the Beautiful Circle Vision film, the Monsanto House of the Future, and so much more. So slip on your space helmet and munch on your Pillsbury space food stick as you listen to the history of Disneyland's Tomorrowland of 1967. You might remember in our last episode, we talked about 1967 and the opening of Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, and that wasn't the only thing that opened in 1967. Uh, The new Tomorrowland, Walt's shining vision of an optimistic future, also (laughs) opened. Now, this Tomorrowland would be the Tomorrowland Walt had always wanted, but had neither the time nor the money to build in 1955. This iteration of Tomorrowland was a great leap forward. This was the first time the land of the future could finally be rid of its Walt Disney bestowed nickname, Todayland. <laughs> so, now, science fiction author Ray Bradbury and Walt Disney were good friends. And one day over lunch in 1964... When Walt was planning the new Tomorrowland, Bradbury asked Walt, Walt, why don't you hire me to come in and help you with ideas to rebuild Tomorrowland? And Walt said, Ray, it's no use. You're a genius and I'm a genius. After two weeks, we'd kill each other. (laughs) So Bradbury said that was the nicest turndown he's ever had, having Walt Disney (laughs) call him a genius. So Bradbury never got to work on Tomorrowland. But Walt Disney's interest in the future and technology was most evident in his three-episode Man in Space series for the Disneyland television show. And these episodes aired between 1955 and 1957, and they were titled Man in Space, Man in the Moon, and Mars and Beyond. And Walt and his production team worked closely with the well-known German scientist Werther von Braun, who served as a technical advisor for the Man in Space series. And in the early 1960s, Collier's magazine invited von Braun to publish his vision regarding space exploration. And the articles, which included illustrations from leading space artists, did more than any other medium to convince their four million readers that space travel was possible. But von Braun knew that television had the potential to influence even more people. So together, von Braun, the engineer, and Disney, the artist, used the new medium of television to illustrate how high man might fly on the strength of technology and the spirit of human imagination. And according to David R. Smith, the director emeritus of archives at Walt Disney Productions, Von Braun caught the attention of Disney's senior producer, Ward Kimball. 
The Collier's series had appeared about the time that Disney decided to use television to promote Disneyland in California. Now, the theme park would include four major sections, Fantasyland, Frontierland, Adventureland, and Tomorrowland. Disney producers would incorporate ideas from Disney fantasy films like Snow White, Pinocchio, and others to promote the first area of the park. The second and third areas would be built around Davy Crockett and other adventure films. But Tomorrowland represented a real challenge. After reading the Collier articles, Kimball contacted Von Braun, who, according to Smith, pounced on the opportunity. So as a technical space consultant for Disney, Von Braun would join Heinz Haber, a specialist in the emerging field of space and medicine, and Willie Lay, a famous rocket historian. And all three space experts had authored the Collier's series. So Walt Disney introduced the first television show, Man in Space, which aired on ABC on March 9th, 1955. The purpose, Walt said, was to combine the tools of our trade with the knowledge of the scientists to give a factual picture of the latest plans for man's newest adventure. He later called the show Science Factual. And the show represented something new in its approach to science, but it also relied on Disney's animation techniques. So through a combination of documentary footage and animation, this episode took a lighthearted look at rocket history, satellites, and what spacemen would have to face traveling in a rocket. The episode ran about 51 minutes and was mostly narrated by actor Dick Tuffield, and you might know him as the voice of the robot on the television series Lost in Space. Mm. Sort of ironic. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, Man in Space was also edited down to 33 minutes and released to theaters as a documentary short subject, uh, along with the feature Davy Crockett and the River Pirates, which was a compilation of the final two Davy Crockett television episodes in 1956. So Man in Space was nominated for an Academy Award in the documentary short subject category, but lost to the true story of the Civil War. Nearly 42 people had originally seen the show in black and white on television, but in the days before DVDs and downloading, audiences were delighted to see it again in color on a large movie screen. The second episode in the series also aired in 1955 and was titled Man and the Moon, and it began with an animated sequence devoted to legends and superstitions regarding the moon, and it included the idea that the left hind foot of a rabbit found in a graveyard during the dark of the moon will bring good luck. And an educational brochure published to promote Man and the Moon said, This film represents a realistic and believable trip to the moon in a rocket ship, not in some far-off fantastic never-never land, but in the foreseeable future. Now, Von Braun narrates a section of the film and describes his ideas for a two-phase trip to the moon. And the first part of the effort would require building a space station. And this base would serve as the staging area for the second part of the trip to the moon. Our space satellite station will have the shape of a wheel measuring 250 feet across. This outside rim will contain living and working quarters for a crew of 50 men, Von Braun said. 
Just below the radio and radar antenna is an atomic reactor. Its heat will be used to drive a turbo generator, which supplies the station with electricity. Now, Disney archivist David Smith noted that Von Braun invented a special spacesuit for Man in the Moon and nicknamed it the Bottle Suit. Hmm. And the suit, the suit represented a miniature space vehicle with its own atmosphere and rocket propulsion system, along with manipulator arms to accomplish assembly work in orbit. And just as he had done in Man in Space, Disney decided to illustrate Von Braun's technical concepts. For the second show, however, Disney used live actors to portray an astronaut crew departing from the space station for their journey around the moon. And the drama increases when a meteor strikes the ship and one astronaut has to put on a bottle suit to make the repairs. And originally, the air date for the third episode, Mars and Beyond, was scheduled for spring 1956, coinciding with Mars being closest to the Earth. Preparation for the episode had begun in 1954, and story meetings and filming sessions with Von Braun were completed before the launch of Sputnik. However, Ward Kimball and his team were delayed from completing that program to work on an episode that would have focused on the U.S. Navy's Project Vanguard, and they publicized as putting an artificial satellite into orbit, supposedly in 1957. And after seeing the popularity of the first two Disney television shows devoted to space, the National Academy of Sciences and IBM, who were supplying the computer power for the project, wanted Disney to generate the same public support and enthusiasm for this project. But due to problems that delayed Vanguard and caused the U.S. government to turn their support to the United States Army's competing Redstone project, this episode never aired. So Mars and Beyond, the final episode, originally aired on December 4th, 1957. Once again, it was narrated by Paul Fries, and the episode discussed the possibility of life on other planets, primarily Mars. It began with a unique introduction by Walt Disney and his robot co-host, co-host um, Garko, who provided a brief overview. Unlike the previous two episodes, Mars and Beyond had a more serious tone as it profiled each of the planets in the solar system from the perspective of what would happen to a man on them. Through inventive Disney animation, the episode ended with a trip to Mars, and the missions showed six atomic-powered Mars ships, ultimately reaching 100,000 miles per hour, taking a 400-day spiral course to Mars, where they would spend 412 days on the surface before returning. So these three successful television shows were just a glimpse into Walt Disney's interest in space travel and a futuristic world of tomorrow. So the Man in Space series can be seen today on the 2004 DVD release, Walt Disney Treasures, Tomorrowland, Disney in Space and Beyond, and you can find it on YouTube. Um, the attractions that Walt Disney's Imagineers designed for Disneyland's new Tomorrowland of 1967 were inspired by Walt's optimistic view of the future and his enthusiastic belief that technology would lead the way to a better tomorrow. And some of the elements from the television shows that I just talked about would find their way into some of the attractions in Tomorrowland.
Now, Walt's original concept for Tomorrowland had been a vista into a world of wondrous ideas, signifying man's achievements, a step into the future with predictions of constructive things to come. And as we learned in a previous episode of 60 Years of Disneyland, the original Tomorrowland was primarily a collection of exhibits from companies such as Monsanto, Crane, and Kaiser Aluminum. In 1959, the original land was expanded with the addition of the Matterhorn bobsleds, the Disneyland Alweg monorail system, and submarine voyage through liquid space. That was the greatest expansion Disneyland had seen at that time. Now Walt had the opportunity to focus his attention once again on Tomorrowland. He took advantage of his fame and had his Imagineers visit as many laboratories as possible. Companies like AT&T, General Motors, Ford, and NASA were happy to show the Imagineers around their facilities, as long as they swore to secrecy. The Imagineers would then return to the Imagineering offices in Glendale and determine which technologies could be used within the park. Transportation in the United States at this time was an important issue. Cities are becoming more crowded. More people were moving to the suburbs. Freeways were being introduced to more and more states across the country. Air travel was becoming more affordable. The first jumbo jet, the Boeing 747, and the first manned trip to the moon were just two years away. Walt's vision of the future would be called a world on the move. For more than three years, the Imagineers worked on the $23 million expansion. If you recall, just 11 years earlier, it had cost roughly $17 million to build all of Disneyland. Wow. Yeah, yeah, so (laughs) inflation, and it shows also the sophistication of the attractions. Because we have to remember, audio animatronics was still new, to the 1967 audience. Pirates had just opened. The Haunted Mansion had not yet opened. And the um, Tiki Birds, you know, had been around for just a few years. But so, so more audio animatronics were being added in to Tomorrowland. And they were much more sophisticated than even what, um, what guests to Disneyland had seen. So the new Tomorrowland would be five acres, twice the size of the original Tomorrowland. Now, at the same time, Walt Disney was also working on his biggest dream to build a community called Epcot, the experimental prototype community of tomorrow, on his newly acquired property in Florida. And transportation was a major focus of Epcot. And to learn more about the Epcot City of Walt's vision, you'll want to listen to the Dis Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast that I host with Craig Williams. And Walt and his Imagineers designed transportation systems for the new Tomorrowland that also served as attractions to see how they functioned. And if these systems were successful, they would be incorporated into the city of Epcot. So 1967 Tomorrowland was used to test ideas for Walt's larger Epcot project in Florida. Now, despite Walt's passing in December 1966, Construction on New Tomorrowland continued uninterrupted. So now let's all pile in the Ford Country Sedan station wagon and drive over to Disneyland. So, and of course, 
no seat belts for us to, to buckle up in. So before we get on the freeway, we had better fill up the gas tank for 30 cents a gallon. (laughs) (laughs) And after parking the car, ride a tram over to one of the outer ticket booths and take $20 out of your wallet, because that's plenty for our little family of four here on the podcast team tonight. So we'd better get that 15 ride ticket book to make sure we ride all our favorite attractions. Ticket books in the summer of 1967 cost between $3.50 and $5.50, depending on the guest's age and how many tickets you wanted. And this included the price of admission to the park. So if everyone wants to ride some big additional attractions, e-tickets are $0.75 cents at the ticket booths inside the park. Individual D tickets are $0.60 cents each. C tickets are $0.35. Cents. B tickets, 25 cents, and A tickets are 10 cents. And that's usually the ones that you all went home with at the end of the day. (laughs) Now, when Tomorrowland, New Tomorrowland, opened on July 2nd, 1967, it had a new look, fresh and futuristic. Most of the previous Tomorrowland structures had been completely demolished to make way for new or improved attractions. The stark white color was of the space age and reflected Walt's optimistic spirit. The architecture was a blend of form and function in the mid-century modern style, and each show building perfectly fit its surroundings. Visible from Disneyland's Central Hub Plaza were Tomorrowland's two reflective silver spires, which drew your eye from the horizon up to outer space and back down to Earth again. And a similar effect happened with the main flight to the moon sign further west. This gateway to Tomorrowland was framed by water fountains, and the two silver spires, which were the facades for America the Beautiful on the left, and Monsanto's Adventure Through Inner Space on the right. Two deep black cube-like structures turned 45 degrees with raised silver lettering invited you into the new adventure through inner space and circle vision attractions. Two large ceramic tile murals are a warm and inviting contrast to the stark white of this future. One mural is on the Bell System Circle Vision 360 building. The other is on the Monsanto Adventure Through Inner Space building. And together the two murals form a work of art called The Spirit of Creative Energies Among Children. And if these murals remind guests of an It's a Small World in Fantasyland, there's good reason. These murals and the dolls in it, in It's a Small World, were designed by Disney artist Mary Blair. Now, at first glance, these murals seem to have nothing to do with the future or technology. So why are they so prominent in Tomorrowland? Because they actually are a depiction of the future. The North Mural on America the Beautiful shows children from different nations dancing and making music. Ribbons above their heads symbolize global communications. At the top of the mural, communication satellites bring the world closer together. The South Mural on the Adventure Through Inner Space building is about energy, with nods to solar wind, wind energy, water power, and fire. So it's all the elements. 
Each mural is 54 feet in length. The north mural is 15 and a half feet high. The south mural is even taller because it begins closer to the ground. And these murals are timeless. Walt Disney personally chose to have Mary Blair's art bring a sense of optimism and joy to Tomorrowland. The murals reflect Walt's enthusiasm for the wonders of science and technology. He wanted us to embrace the future and welcome it. So do you remember seeing those murals? Did any of you ever see the oh, Mary yeah. Blair murals? Oh, yeah. yeah, those were beautiful. And they're still there. They're yeah. apparently significantly damaged, but they're still there. Underneath the... The Star the Wars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, and and Buzz Lightyear murals, which I think if they took those down, nobody would miss them. Mm-mm. But um, I'm always hoping someday in the next reimagining of the park, they'll, they'll restore those murals. Mm-hmm. Now, below your feet, the walkways are an ocean blue. And above you, people mover vehicles travel smoothly and quietly along a long slender beam track supported by modern-looking support beams. The people movers weave through every Tomorrowland show building, and John Hench, with assistance from Disney sculptor Mitsu, designed the supports for the Wedway people mover beam. And from below, looking up, the supports were designed to project an image of tree branches that were organic. The design features supports with soft, symmetrical shapes and arches. Now, Imagineer Rolly Crump designed the environmental elements, like the ticket booths and the Mad Hatter store, in the same style. And the circulation site plan was designed to minimize the distance a guest has to walk. So guests walking around the perimeter to each attraction only have to walk one half mile. Since many guests would see Tomorrowland from above in the monorail, people mover, and skyway, the landscape architecture was specially enhanced to be seen from above. The 90-foot rocket designed by Imagineer George McGinnis atop the People Mover Station with 12 revolving rocket jets on 18-foot-long control arms draw us further into the land. Placing the rocket jets on top of the People Mover Station was Walt's idea. And guests enter the rocket jet attraction through one of two gantry elevators to the upper level. On the second level is the Wedway People Mover. Now, the People Mover was Disneyland's fourth attraction that enabled you to see a large portion of the park. And do you know what the other three attractions are at this time that allow you to see the park? Railroad. Correct. The Disneyland Santa Fe Railroad. Skyway. The Skyway, correct. Mark Twain? Um, Well, the monorail. Actually, is what they were talking about. So, anyway, those all allow you to view uh, multiple um, parts of Disneyland. Was that the? Were we officially in monorail now, as opposed to the um, the viewliner? Yeah, the viewliner is gone now. Okay. By this time, viewline viewliner funny only lasted about a year or so. That line so blurs for me some days. It's like, yeah. you know, you see those pictures and they're so iconic. And then I know, especially when you see the view liner right next to the, um, the steam engine, steam locomotive. Yeah. That's always one of my favorite photos. <laughs> <laughs> now, the Wedway People Mover was originally developed for Walt's Epcot. 
And Disney artist and Imagineer Mark Davis recalled that Walt was always looking ahead. He was very interested in the 60s in city planning. He had his people mover and he talked about taking a city like Los Angeles and having the people mover connecting stores and businesses and so forth, but all at the second story level. He was always ahead of things. He seemed to get bored easily, so he was always out on the edge. With the Wedway People Mover, Walt now had, as the press release described, a silent, all-electric, completely automatic, intermediate transportation system designed for variable speed, point-to-point shuttle transportation service. The opening day press release described it as a series of vehicles that never stop moving, even when passengers are boarding or debarking. I'd never heard that word before, debarking. Debarking? Yeah. I was heard As opposed to disembarking, yeah. Yeah, but i that's what they wrote. Um, silent trains that glide along at predetermined varying speeds, automatically spaced vehicles that can't collide, motorless cars that eliminate the chance of one vehicle stalling all the others, compartment doors that slide open and close by themselves, a transportation system on which passengers never have to wait for the journey to begin. Now, the system has 62 continuously moving, fully automatic four-car trains. Each train is silent and motorless and can travel at varying speeds of up to 12 miles per hour and has the capacity or capability to travel up and down substantial grades. If you still look at that that people mover track, you know, when it's especially going up and over um, Utopia and the um, submarine voyage, it's going up a fairly good grade. So, um, the track is 3,250 feet. Each car has a speaker for the pre-recorded narration, and the system has a remarkable capacity to handle 4,885 guests per hour. However, on any crowded day, guests almost always had to wait because the escalator leading up to the people mover called the speed ramp was either malfunctioning or shut down. I remember that. Yeah. (laughs) If just one person slowed down or stopped at the top, the rest of the guests behind would slam into each other. So guests load the trains on a continuously moving platform. Imagineer Bob Gurr had designed this part of the project. He designed the loading platform as a groove turntable, and the cars would come around on the outer rim whilst guests um, boarded from the moving platform. He was so proud of his high-capacity, low-speed loading system, he rushed over to Walt's office to show him. Now, Walt had just returned from Europe, where he had attended an exposition in Geneva, Switzerland, and he examined Gurr's drawings and told him he had already seen the same type of platform at the exposition. So Walt sent Gurr to Geneva on July 4th, 1964, with a 16-millimeter camera, where Gurr validated his design. Now, the Wedway People Mover provides guests with an overview of Tomorrowland that Walt wanted. As the trains leave the loading platform, they glide along the beamway toward the Tomorrowland Terrace. Guests can preview adventure through inner space as the train passed behind the mighty microscope and the post-show area. Our journey continues through the character shop, the second largest souvenir shop in Disneyland, and travels back outside towards the Tomorrowland bandstand before heading indoors 
and passing by the flight to the moon's mission control and the huge scale model of Progress City inside the Carousel of Progress. The trains return outdoors to wind over, under, and along the monorail beamway and give guests a view of the submarine voyage and Utopia. At times, the Wedway People Mover beamway reaches up to 34 feet. And the final preview before returning to the loading platform is the pre-show area for the Circle Vision Theater. Only two entirely new attractions were built for New Tomorrowland, the People Mover and Adventure Through Inner Space. Both these attractions are still two of the most missed attractions at Disneyland, and they were both slow, steady, and had great scenery. Monsanto's Adventure Through Inner Space was Tomorrowland's first dark ride and the world's first Omnimover ride system. Many guests believe the Haunted Mansion with its black doom buggies was the first Omnimover attraction, but Adventure Through Inner Space and its blue Atommobiles was the first to open. These ride vehicles were two-passenger oval-shaped pods that surrounded guests and allowed them to only see forward. The Atommobiles could turn left or right or even travel backward. For the first time, the Imagineers could edit the scenes on a ride, using the eyes of the guests as a motion picture camera. By turning the vehicle left or right, the Imagineer could aim the guests directly at a specific scene, then cut the scene by spinning the car in the opposite direction. Right after opening the Monsanto House of the Future in 1957, Walt started thinking about a protozoa ride that would take patrons into the drop of water as seen through a microscope. And Walt believed there's great urgency today to interest young people in science as a profession. During this time, space exploration had captured everyone's attention and children wanted to be astronauts when they grew up. Dr. Charles Allen Thomas, chairman of the Monsanto Company and a close friend of Walt Disney, became concerned that the other sciences were being ignored. And he wanted people to be excited about chemistry and the work being done at Monsanto, which Dr. Thomas believed produced products more relevant and immediate to the day-to-day needs of the public. Dr. Thomas wanted people to see what was really happening at the microscopic level. So Walt put Claude Coates in charge of the project. Xavier Atencio, Yale Gracie, Ed Johnson, and others also worked on the project. And Dr. Thomas's goals for the attraction were focused on educating the guests. The 123 automobiles traveled 1.2 miles along a hidden 682-foot loop and were driven by 16 electronic motors from General Electric through cam-like activators along the track. The attraction took six minutes. Each automobile carried two passengers and loaded every three seconds from a revolving turntable. The attraction's capacity was 3,275 guests per hour. The attraction was placed in the same 21,773-foot square space that had been home to the original Hall of Chemistry. So guests entered through the 40-foot high silver polished facade. A water fountain of abstract form symbolized inner and outer space. 
For adults, the attraction was free. Children entered by using the free ticket inside the junior and child ticket books. Um, a Monsanto VIP guest lounge was adjacent to the loading area. As guests meandered down the curving ramp toward the loading platform, they passed eight display pods that previewed the attraction. It was then guests learned that they were to be shrunk down to the size of a water molecule using the Atomobile. Along one wall was a giant multicolor snowflake tracking screen, identifying where the ride vehicles were located. Along another wall was the mighty microscope, the most impressive and memorable object in the queue area. Mm-hmm. Guests, guests could see the Wedway people movers silently gliding behind the mighty microscope. The Mighty Eye microscope was 12 feet high and 37 feet long and was designed by Imagineer George McGinnis. From the queue, guests could watch full-size automobiles entering one end of the microscope, only to become visible again in a much smaller size inside the transparent barrel of the microscope. The automobiles appeared to shrink even smaller and were then blasted into the snowflake on the laboratory slide. The illusion was very successful, and many guests reported being afraid they would not return back to their normal size. Speakers inside each automobile allowed guests to hear the narration by character actor Paul Fries, perhaps best known to Disneyland fans today as the narrator for the Haunted Mansion and voiceover work in Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, external speakers along the route projected the voices of the tracking crew, and this is accompanied by a futuristic soundtrack by composer Buddy Baker. So now let's board our automobiles and go for a ride through inner space. Oh, and this is a family-friendly podcast, Musketeers, so no making out during the ride. So, so our automobiles glides into the microscope for Act One. As we enter the room, we rotate backwards and become disoriented. In a few moments, we are surrounded by projections of snowflakes that transform into large, three-dimensional sculptures as we move forward. Continuing on our journey, the scale of the snowflakes grows larger and larger until the shapes become vague, creating the illusion we are progressively shrinking. In Act 2, the attraction was primarily set pieces rather than projections. More on this from Imagineer Exitentio later. In Act 3, we continue to shrink until we reach the threshold of inner space. Our automobile is surrounded by spinning projections of Mickey Mouse-shaped spheres of water molecules. We now enter a room surrounded by three large molecules wrapped in fluorescent beads and moved along with air pressure. We are now as small as a water molecule as we pass beneath three-dimensional water molecules spinning above us as we prepare to become subatomic. Do you hear voices? It sounds as if the tracking crew is worried about not receiving our automobile signal and that we may be missing. Flashing electrons shower us as our automobile is drawn forward by the pulsing nucleus of the atom, which looks like a miniature sun. In the final act, the snowflakes begin to melt, causing our automobile to drop. Our narrator reassures us we are safe and back on visual. 
Looking up, we see a giant human eye peering down at us through the microscope. As our automobile approaches the unloading ta- turntable, we pass the Fountain of Fashion, which is a two-story hourglass of glycerin oil flowing down hundreds of microfilament strands surrounding mannequins dressed in the latest polyester fashions. Remember mm. when smaller versions of these were popular? In homes with a Grecian-looking statue in them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Richard and Robert Sherman's Miracles from Molecules is playing in the background. Now, the post-show area included a new version of the Clock of the World, based on a projection of the world as seen from the North Pole. And a revolving disc allows guests to note the time anywhere in the world. So what did you think of your six-minute adventure through inner space? I can vividly remember writing that with my grandmother when I was six years old, and it was one of the few memories that in Small World and Pirates stuck with me for a lifetime. And that I was one of our favorites. Can you do you remember the Big Eye, Nancy? Mm-hmm. I remember the Big Eye. I remember being just wowed by like how small we were going to get, and I remember seeing the water molecules. And the the frozen snowflakes and and the crystals and knowing what they were because I had a big brother who was a science geek and he was nine. <laughs> I I remember being convinced that we were getting tiny and I'd be watching the people getting on their automobiles and going through the microscope and looking to see yeah that match she was wearing a yellow shirt and there's the yellow shirt and <laughs> I, I did the same thing I tried to match the guests and tried to figure out how long does it take to shrink. And all that. Yeah. So we were such gullible little kids. Oh, I know. But it, but it also shows how effective that yeah. simple illusion was. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a very simple attraction, but it really did its job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, but it's funny because I was re- when I was reading about this, Dave Smith, the archivist hated this attraction. Really? And he, yeah. When, cause there, there was a little, you know, some Imagineers did not want to see this attraction go and wanted to, you know, spruce it up a bit, you know, bring it up to more modern technology. And, mm-hmm. and Dave Smith was just, he felt it's time had come. It needed to go. So, um, yeah, it really surprised me. So now, now, after this attraction opened, um, the Imagineers learned an important lesson. Imagineer Exitentio reported, We did adventure through inner space with a big plate glass effect. The kids would go in there and spit on the glass. Ugh. I know. We had also designed the sets to be close to the cars, and it gave more of a show to have those effects surrounding you up close. But the kids reached out and literally tore the sets to pieces. Anything they could touch, they grabbed. I guess when they were isolated in groups of two, they were more prone to misbehavior. That's why we can't have nice things in Disneyland. <laughs> yeah. To, That's to why you pre- don't have a, a, a apple. an apple. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Um, to prevent further problems of this kind with misbehaving guests, the Imagineers developed a new concept they called the envelope of protection. Protection for the sets, not the guests. All future attractions would keep props and set pieces out of the reach of guests up to seven feet tall. You know, and I noticed this when I went to um, Tokyo Disneyland, how in the queues and even in some of the attractions, the set pieces are within reach. And the, some of the queues, like in um, Winnie 
the Pooh's Great Honey Hunt, they they have these heavily detailed cues, like where you're walking through the playroom and there's a whole little tea set set up where you can just touch things. And I thought this would not survive the first day here in Disneyland. And it just showed the difference in cultures, Mm -hmm. you know, between us and Japan, that they were much more respectful towards towards property so that Imagineers didn't need that big envelope of protection there. I'm assuming that hasn't changed since I was there. Um, Opening one week before the other new Tomorrowland attractions was the all-new version of America the Beautiful in 360 Circle Vision, directly across from Adventures Through Inner Space. The new Circle Vision system used a larger 35mm film to not only provide a sharper image, but reduced the number of projectors from 11 to 9. And America the Beautiful was the first film to premiere in the new format, and this system became the cornerstone for Disney exposition film productions that will later travel to Canada and China and many other countries. This theater was larger. The screens and projectors were arranged above head level, and lean rails were provided for viewers to hold or lean against while standing and viewing the film. This version of the film took guests from Hawaii to Alaska and reveals the wide range of natural beauty to be found throughout America. America the Beautiful was a free show sponsored by the Bell System, American Telephone and Telegraph, and associated companies, and hosted by Pacific Telephone, which explains why the pre-show featured the high-tech wonders of picture phones, where guests could connect with a person supposedly in Chicago, and small fry phones for children so they could talk with their favorite Disney friends, such as Goofy, Snow White, Jiminy Cricket, Donald Duck, and of course Mickey Mouse. America the Beautiful was staffed with female Bell Telephone employees who worked in the park on six-month breaks from their official Bell positions. Hmm. Up to 3,000 guests could enjoy the show. On August 12, 1957, an original attraction received a major reimagining. The flight to the moon was ahead of its time when it opened in 1955, but needed a new updated look. In 1967, the journey began in Mission Control, referred to as the nerve center of Disneyland's spaceport. Rocket to the Moon's two dome theaters and its curvy building were removed, and a new building with a similar layout was put, built in its place and expanded so it could accommodate Mission Control. Guests now entered Mission Control and stood in long rows. Behind the glass was a staff of eight audio-animatronic technicians from Space Operations studying their display consoles. Their supervisor was Mr. Tom Morrow, the control center director who was giving instructions to the technicians. The live host or hostess interrupted Mr. Morrow and engaged him in a tightly scripted four-and-a-half-minute conversation. This was the first time a Disney attraction combined a live actor with an audio-animatronic figure. After being distracted by the landing of a wayward bird, Guests boarded their Lunar Transport Flight 92. The Lunar Transport's capacity had been increased from 102 to 162 guests. Seats were arranged in two sections with four rows. Like the original version, these transports had two large screens on the wall, one screen on the floor, and another screen on the ceiling. 
The storyline was pretty much the same, with the addition of a conversation with an astronaut working on the moon and new motorized seats. The new seats had a movable lower cushion that would slide down upon takeoff, giving guests the illusion of increased G-forces, and rise back up when the transport was in orbit to simulate weightlessness. The round-trip journey to the moon took 12 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) So, And there are a lot of elements from the Man in Space television series that were incorporated into this version of Flight to the Moon. Now, Utopia also received some attention in New Tomorrowland. The Mark 7 car, the Mark 6 car, I'm sorry, broke down even more frequently than the earlier versions. Imagineer Bob Gurr was tasked with the design of a new vehicle. Gurr examined all versions of the cars from 1955 till today with the goal of designing a reliable vehicle that would be the solution to all of Utopia's problems, the Mark 7. The Mark 7 Bobger designed was so strong it could survive a platoon of five moving cars hitting a platoon of five parked cars. 160 Mark 7 cars were built for Disneyland. The cars became known as Stingrays. Of his design, Gurr said, That car came out before the 1968 Corvette Stingray, and I designed the surface development for the 67 Utopia car without ever seeing the Corvette. Henry Haga, a friend of Gurr's, was the principal designer of the 1968 Corvette, and Gurr showed Haga his outwork. I flipped when I saw his Corvette, and he flipped when he saw my Utopia car. These were two separate designs that looked exactly the same, right down to the cutoff spoiler on the back end. But the star of the whole show was the Carousel of Progress. Its arrival at Disneyland directly after its run at the New York World's Fair had been the motivation for redesigning Tomorrowland. When the show was moved to Disneyland, audio-animatronic technology had greatly improved. General Electric continued their sponsorship, and a round two-story building designed by John Hench was constructed in Tomorrowland, where the old space bar counter service eating area had been. For an in-depth examination of the Carousel of Progress, please listen to the 60 Years of Disneyland episode, The World's Fair Comes to Disneyland. We all know Walt liked to provide guests with previews of things to come, and he did this in Disneyland's Carousel of Progress. In the last scene in which mother and father are celebrating Christmas in their General Electric medallion home, Hmm. outside their living room window, you could now see the Tower of Progress City. The significance of this was revealed in the final act. The other preview came in the final act, which was not in the New York version, which included an invitation for guests to board a moving speed ramp located directly in front of the seating area, center stage, and travel to the second level to view the model of Progress City, whose tower could be seen through the window in the previous scene. Now follow your host's instructions to see the new springtime of progress awaits you. Spring up out of your seats and head for the doorway to the future. Please keep moving. Don't stand in the way of progress. The model covered 6,900 square feet and measured 115 feet across, 60 feet deep, and scaled one-eighth inch to one foot. 
Guests viewed the model from one of three terraced rows, and at the center was the modern cosmopolitan resort hotel tower. At its base was the enclosed city center. The model contained more than 20,000 trees and shrubs, 1,400 working streetlights, and more than 4,500 structures that were lit from within, and 2,450 moving vehicles. The city included schools, stadiums, shopping centers, and an amusement park. All destinations were connected by working models of monorails, people movers, automobiles, and trucks. An airport and a general electric power plant were on the outskirts of the city. Each section of the community was highlighted during a four-and-a-half-minute audio-only presentation by mother and father. What most guests did not know was Progress City was a preview of what Walt intended to build on the 27,443 acres he and Roy had purchased in Central Florida. Walt Disney had shared his ideas for the city of Epcot in a television broadcast only months before the opening of New Tomorrowland. Walt Disney had recorded the film less than two months before his death. At the time New Tomorrowland opened, the public had very little knowledge of Walt's ideas for Epcot City in Central Florida. Progress City was Walt's vision for Epcot, the experimental prototype community of tomorrow. Imagineer Marty Scalar said that model almost exactly matched all our planning for Epcot. I think Walt got a kick out of doing this model without having to say that he was going to build this big city, but it was all there for anybody to see. He was planting a seed through the show in the Carousel of Progress in Tomorrowland at Disneyland. There was Progress City visible out the window in the final scene of the carousel, and then you went upstairs and there was Walt's own model city. Despite all the addition of t- the, the, the all the additions of the two new attractions and reimagining of the many existing Tomorrowland attractions, Walt was not finished with Tomorrowland. So, before we go on, so what memories do you have of the Carousel of Progress, and did you get to see Progress City? Oh yeah, yeah. I I remember watching um, when we'd go out there. We always wanted to see the little airplane that would take off from the airport that they had mm-hmm. in there. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. I loved Progress City. I I was just mesmerized by it, how the monorails moved and the people movers moved and were all lit up and all that. It was impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, and, I, 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 and I remember, you know, a lot of times people will, if they have a some type of um, exhibit or something, people will just keep going, right? Mm-hmm. But this one, everybody stayed to see because he narrated about the city and he would light up different sections. I remember that now. Right. He would light up different sections of the city as he talked about it. But yeah, Carousel of Progress was a, was definitely a favorite of ours. Yeah. Yeah. I never miss it when I go to Disney World and only a small portion of uh, the, um, well, about two thirds of it or so of Progress City model you can see in on, you know, along the, um, the people mover in Tomorrowland and, um, but you go by it so fast, you know, you can't really take it in and it's not a working model, you know, anymore. And I, I talk more about the model on connecting with Walt and how it ended up in pieces, 
you know, over at Disney World. Okay, so what we used to see at Disneyland, they don't have at Disney at Walt Disney World. No, as di- far as that's concerned. No, General Electric did not. When they wanted to move the Carousel of Progress over to the new theme park, the Magic Kingdom, because they wanted a new audience and they wanted to freshen it up a bit. So the final scene was changed. They wanted a new song written. Instead of a great big beautiful tomorrow where you're always looking ahead, they wanted the song, um, the song changed to reflect, you know, the here and now. And, uh, and, um, it also was more in line with what their, their marketing slogan was at the time. And because they wanted people to spend money now, not always thinking about, you know, saving up for the future, you know, buy general electric appliances. And Hi. they didn't. So the, the model was cut up because originally they thought, you know, John Hench and everyone thought it was being moved to Florida. So it was put in storage. And then General Electric said, you know what? We don't, we're not going to have a post show. So John Hench had to go back and redesign a one story carousel of progress for Florida. And now they didn't need the model of progress city anymore. And it was, and now, so it was decided, um, well, they, they had some space along the, the people mover track. Um, they had some show space, so they decided to sort of wedge in a piece of the, of the progress city into that, into the existing space. So you have, what you have is the Cosmopolitan Resort, um, hotel tower. You have the, the, what was going to be domed, but actually was going to be enclosed, uh, city center. And then you have about, you have about two thirds, I think, of the, um, the greenscape area, and then you have almost a complete section of the low density um, housing area, sort of like the suburb yeah. of Epcot. And that's all there is, and nothing works. You know, nothing lights up or anything on it. Years so. ago, it would the the radiating um, traffic monorails that would go out to the suburb. Years ago, those would light up, but not anytime yeah and then and then they just threw away what the the parts that didn't fit along the people mover so i'm glad we saw what we did because it was the natural progression of the whole show right as you went through all the different seasons and and it would become more modern more modern and then here's what we're going to have tomorrow yeah oh yeah oh it was perfect Mm-hmm. Yeah, so because it was because yeah it was after what they talked about in the final scene, you know uh, you know where you know grandma and grandpa are you know, off in this they they live in a senior community but the children are picking them up from the airport you know and all that kind of stuff and then you saw the whole city right there so so Michael was this a song that was also written by the Sherman Brothers it was yeah it was mm-hmm. it, it it just has to go to show you the talent because that. That um, attraction moved in 1971, so I was 11 when it moved. And from the time that it started showing in Disneyland, I still know the words by heart. Oh, it's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, and then, to the chagrin of everybody else who had yeah, to hear me sing yeah. it. And then what's funny is, you know, they, they restored It's Great, Big, Beautiful Tomorrow a few years ago to... The, to the Carousel of Progress at Disney World, and people there were upset that their original song was being replaced because <laughs> they right. didn't re- they didn't realize that actually that wasn't the original song, but for them it was. Right. 
You that know, was a song they grew up to. Right, exactly. Well, that was the one I learned originally. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd heard the the car- original Carousel Progress song when I was six. Um, but, yeah, I had known that other song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I'm trying to Google that one right now. I was going to say, no, but is that as catchy as Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow? It was. I think okay. it was for, the, if you grew up with it, it was. Okay. You know, just the way it's a great big beautiful tomorrow is catchy for us because we yeah, grew because up with it. I, you know, the Sherman brothers just have a, a talent to, um, ensnare your heart, right? When, oh, yeah. With their music. And so. Yeah, now, did, did they write the one for Walt Disney World also? Yes. 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 Okay. Yeah, they wrote both of them. But they like, they preferred the first one because they felt the first one more reflected, um, Walt and his vision and his personality. And they sort of wrote it for Walt. So it was their tribute to Walt. Wow. Yeah. It's now is the best time of your life. Yeah. Now is the best, best time. time. Right it's time, best now, time, whatever it is. Oh. Now is the time. Now is the best time. Now is the best time of I'm your life. Alive. Something like but that. But I bet if you Which started singing as a great big beautiful tomorrow, then Nancy and I would join in. Yeah. Right, Tom, yeah. And we would sing uh-huh. it all. Right. <laughs> well, the other song too matched the marketing. Um, that was when GE was really primed in their, their the best time of your life marketing exactly. campaign. Exactly. And so it that, tied right on in. Yeah. That, and that's what they wanted. So, so like, yeah. So I, like I said, at least we can still see the carousel of progress at Disney World. Mm-hmm. So. But like I now, like I mentioned, um, there was still something that was Walt wanted to put into Tomorrowland. He wasn't finished with it. Another major attraction was planned, but it wasn't built for 1967's New Tomorrowland. Walt had an idea for a spaceport described as a towering structure, a futuristic, uninhibited architecture containing new rides and exhibits, including an exciting journey into the depths of outer space and return aboard a special Disneyland reentry vehicle in a ride equaling the thrills and excitement of the Magic Kingdom's Matterhorn bobsled run. Now, the plans for this spaceport, including the reimagining of the Flying Saucers attraction, and the Flying Saucers were going to be relocated under the spaceport. And although concept artwork for the spaceport was included in the early promotional materials for New Tomorrowland, it was not built in 1967 due to the high cost and the lack of the necessary technology for the attraction. But a version of the spaceport ended up being built first in Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, but it was renamed Space Mountain. So, so two new stages were also built in Tomorrowland for live musical performances. So to recap, 1967's New Tomorrowland included um, the addition of two new attractions, uh, the People Mover and Adventure Through Inner Space. One attraction was brought in from outside the park, that was the Carousel of Progress, Three attractions were improved and renamed. Rocket to the Moon became Flight to the Moon. Astro Jets became Rocket Jets. Circarama USA became Circle Vision 360. One attraction was to be moved and improved, but this never happened. And that was the Flying Saucers were to be built under the Spaceport or Space Mountain. One major attraction was planned, but was not built for another 10 years in 1977, the Spaceport, as I mentioned, later named Space Mountain. 
Two new stages were built, Tomorrowland Stage and Tomorrowland Terrace Stage. Six previously built attractions remained. The House of the Future, but that would be removed by 1968. Um, Tomorrowland Utopia, Skyway to Fantasyland, Matterhorn Bobsleds, which were part of Tomorrowland in those days, um, the Monorail, and the Submarine Voyage Through Inner Space. Now, t- the Tomorrowland Utopia, Matterhorn, and Submarine Voyage were provided beautiful new landscaping in this beautiful new surroundings, but they experienced few changes themselves as part of the new Tomorrowland. Yet New Orleans Square and Tomorrowland weren't the only realms that received attention in 1967. In Adventureland, a new village with dancing natives and two new gorillas moved into the Jungle Cruise. And at the New York World's Fair, Walt Disney was impressed with the work of glass cutters Tomas and Alfonso Arribas and had been encouraging them to bring their craft to Disneyland. So the Arribas brothers opened on Main Street, USA in 1967. On November 20th, 1967, Disneyland sought and got approval from the Anaheim Planning Commission to expand the borders of the park north and south on land they already owned. The extra land was needed to accommodate guests. By the end of 1967, over 7.9 million guests had visited Disneyland, so its total attendance had reached 67 million. Since opening day, the park had more than doubled the number of attractions from 22 to 52, representing a total investment of $95 million. Disneyland now covered 70 acres, with an additional 115 acres for parking and backstage services. The economic success of Disneyland had a tremendous impact on the surrounding community, which led to the construction of Anaheim Stadium, which opened in 1966 as the home of the California Angels baseball team, and a 9,100-seat Anaheim Convention Center, which opened on July 12th of 1967. Um, The Anaheim Hotel and Motor Inn accommodations grew from 60 rooms in 1955 to more than 6,500 rooms Mm. in 1967. In just 12 years, Anaheim had grown from a sleepy agricultural community to a world-class destination. So in my next episode of 60 Years of Disneyland, we'll knock on the door of that beautiful antebellum mansion that has been sitting vacant alongside the banks of the Rivers of America for 12 years and see if anyone is at home. Perhaps we'll be invited in for a visit. So, Craig, what are your thoughts about this version of Tomorrowland? Um, how does it compare with other versions you've seen? I, I mean, it's the version that I wish I could have seen. <laughs> um, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be the one who sits here and uh, says nasty things about Tomorrowland at at Disneyland because oh, <laughs> it's a mess. Here's the thing: it's it is a mess and. If you took the parts, all if you took all the parts of it and you break them up individually, for the most part, you're like, yeah, that's good, and that's good, and that's good, and that's good. Uh, it it just seems like you know, rather than putting the pieces of the puzzle in their 
correct positions and in, in building a beautiful puzzle uh it, they had the anger of someone who can't do puzzles and just smash the pieces into place <laughs> and uh it's so it's all you know it's it's all the right things just in a really messed up way that doesn't visually look interesting but uh it's it's definitely the it, you know it, the older Tomorrowland of before my time is is what I wish it could go back to. Like, I mean, I, I feel like everyone feels that way. Even the <laughs> first time I went to Disneyland uh, in, in 1999, I always forget what, what year it was. It was right before the 2000 celebration, though. So, yeah, it was it, w- it would have been 99. And, you know, that was I, I was there the summer of rocket rods. And so having the kinetic energy of that attraction moving through during the day when it was working, uh, you know, the, it, it was a beautiful thing. The uh, the line wasn't moving that two hour line for the entire no, day. No. Uh, that that was not kinetic by any means. But, you know, the, having having Autopia and the monorail moving around, uh, it just it all felt like it, it felt a little bit more cohesive. And I want to say back in that trip was Space Mountain and Disneyland painted like a copper for a point in time or am yeah I just they that did up? they did that with the, the tony baxter you know redo yeah that they did yeah they sort of took some of the color scheme from disneyland paris yeah and, and it didn't that, fit yeah that's what i remember of it too so i didn't necessarily like that but uh <laughs> it, 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 I, listen, I never envy anyone with Tomorrowland. I think Disneyland Paris does it the right way by the Tomorrowland of the past. And uh, one day, I feel like Disney will get on board and realize that a 50s ideal version of space travel is the way to go. And we'll start getting we'll start getting more of a feel of uh, the older generations of Tomorrowland. But yeah, it's uh, it, definitely the one right now is not my favorite. It does not stack up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that Tomorrowland of 1967 Disneyland is my favorite. That was It was just so beautiful and, you know, seemed hopeful and fun. And there was a lot of things to do. And now I don't even sometimes go into Tomorrowland when I'm at the park. So, I do, unfortunately. <laughs> every, I mean... Uh, Usually I'm there with like Rhino when I go to Disneyland and uh, he insists on riding Space Mountain once every trip, which I'm I'm okay with for the most part. Uh, he also insists on riding Buzz Lightyear once every trip. And that's not as that doesn't sit as well with me. I just I I feel like I'm wasting time when I'm Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I love Autopia. So I always try to sneak that in at least once a trip as well, too. And if I'm staying at Disneyland hotel uh usually by like the second or third night i'm lazy and i just want to take the monorail in <laughs> have mm-hmm. me drop have it drop me off right in there so i, I i'm in tomorrowland a lot but i i guess not because i necessarily want to be there just because of the uh the the position in life i'm being put into <laughs> yeah yeah i understand but um anyway well we'll see what happens what they do i think in order to make disneyland's something cool they have to do more than cosmetic surgery on it mm-hmm. they, they have to like that carousel of progress building is just an albatross around their neck 
in designing yeah. anything. I, I think it just has to be knocked down. Um, and, and, you know, that section of the land just has to be redone completely from ground up. Yeah. Uh, so. They need, they need another marquee attraction there as well mm-hmm. too. Uh, I mean, not like on the level of like a Tron and what they did with magic kingdom. I, I don't think that, that necessarily needs to happen, but something that reinvigorates uh, Tomorrowland. I mean, like, yeah, it's great that uh, it's great that Star Tours is getting a little refresh here. And uh, I don't remember if they said next year. I want to say it was that where they're adding new destinations <laughs> and stuff. But it's it, it needs something, you know. Just just taking Space Mountain to Hyper Space Mountain every now and then is not is not going to cut it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then look at what they're doing at Tokyo Disneyland. They are tearing down their Space Mountain in order to expand Tomorrowland and building an ultra modern Space Mountain. Yeah, you know, I mean that's that's amazing, just amazing to me. It is, I, I, honestly, too. I, I, it would have made the land even more messy. I, I would have loved to seen Big Hero Six in there until you know doing San Francisco over it. It uh, Disney California Adventure, but I feel like they could have done something fun with that and not the Mater's Junkyard Jamboree with Baymax pulling people around uh, that's, <laughs> that's over there uh, in, in the Asia parks. But yeah, I just, I, I don't know. I, they need, they need another hit movie that has something with Tomorrowland or space involved. Obviously, Strange Worlds wasn't that, and that would have been hard to translate. And Lightyear wasn't a hit, and Tomorrowland the movie wasn't a hit. So they they just need to they need to find an IP to latch onto because yeah. we know that's the only way it's getting updated. They they struggle with science fiction, and and right now Disney's just struggling. Yeah, you know, with their films. I mean, I think. I think I heard Toy Story 4 was their last big hit for Disney animation. I believe that. That's a few years ago. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, pre-pandemic. Yeah. 2018, 2019, somewhere in there. 2019, I think. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think it was like four years ago. So. Yeah, which feels like no time, but at the same time, feels like an eternity. It does. (laughs) A lot happened in those four years. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Uh, well, now it's time for this week in Disney history. Okay, Craig, should I go first or do you want to go first? I'm uh, very flexible. So I can go first. I, you know, I know when this is releasing, so I chose a date that I think falls in our time period. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I'm happy to go if, if you want me to. Sure, go ahead. Okay. Uh, I am choosing from June 28th of uh, 2018. It wasn't necessarily great news. So I'm sorry for everyone who was looking for a, you know, a lighthearted end of this episode. Uh, but, you know, this week in Disney history, it's, I chose the first thing that I, I felt like it jumped out to me. And that was the Disney, Disney Toon Studios uh, of their, arm that was direct to video and you know i think a goofy movie went into theaters on it under mm-hmm. it but uh that's when it finally shut down <laughs> into that era uh officially 
came to an end, which I mean, there's there was a lot of memorable uh, movies that were produced under it. Obviously, uh, uh, sequels, a lot of sequels involved there. The Tinkerbell movies were very successful. Uh, one of my favorite ones, the DuckTales, the Treasure of the Lost Lamp, which I it's not as fun to watch today as it was when I was a kid, but I, I put it on every now and then. And uh, the the Planes movies, those were hugely hugely popular and enhanced the cars universe so they they did a lot of they did a lot of great movies in their time they did a lot of bad movies in their time but yeah, a uh, lot of the sequels were terrible yeah. and yeah. uh you know the the interesting part would be now knowing where disney is at with uh with Disney Plus and how much they invested in that. I mean, maybe it shut down before Disney Plus, knowing that they wouldn't necessarily need it as much. But I feel like now, uh, given the state of Disney Plus and the state of Disney, that they probably wish that they had a, a sector of animation that could produce a lot of cheap material that's, mm-hmm. you know, not necessarily awful quality, but just uh, just a, a different type. And I mean, I guess they do have that to an extent with uh, Disney Plus originals that are created by the separate animation house that's, you know, doing just Disney Plus, not working on theatrical. So they they kind of still have it in a way, but uh, not not to the same degree that I feel like Disney Toon Studios was. But yeah, it's not a problem now. It's shut down. It's gone. <laughs> have, and, and a lot of those have the, any of those made it those sequels and all that made it on the Disney plus. They were so uh, horrendous. I, some I, of them. I, I mean, DuckTales is on there mm-hmm. or I just still watch the DVD. No, it's on there. Uh, planes has to be on Disney plus. I, I can't imagine that it wouldn't be with it. And I want to say the two Aladdin sequels are definitely on there. Okay. But so. I don't I don't know about a lot of the other sequels. I, I'm assuming they are, but yeah. I don't I mean I also don't go seeking them out. <laughs> for no, I've very heard, obvious reason. I've heard the Bambi sequel was good. They really tried to follow it in the um do the animation in the same format, you know, same style as the original film with the watercolor backgrounds. And things like that. And so um, I've not seen it. I don't even know if it's available. It's funny that you brought up Bambi, too, though, because I literally was going to use that as my example of being sarcastic. It's not (laughs) like I'm looking up Bambi, too, on Disney Plus. (laughs) I can't believe... uh, I can't believe you chose that one. I guess we're in sync tonight. We are. We are. There's an old British sitcom that I watch Sunday mornings on Making Breakfast called... um, uh, is it keeping up appearances or something like that? But it's, oh, it's this woman. Um, uh, her, the last name is Bucket, but she pronounces it Bouquet. <laughs> B-U-C-K-E-T, Bouquet. And whenever her son Sheridan calls, who you never meet in all five years of the episode, you only know him by phone. Um, they uh, her um, her name's Hyacinth Hyacinth Bouquet, and she and every time Sheridan calls, she says, "Oh, Sheridan, how how wonderful, how 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 sensitive of you to call m- mummy at this time of crisis. We have such a strong psychic bond." <laughs> <laughs> oh. So it's a great series, just great. 
I will have to look that up. But the good news is Bambi 2 is on Disney Plus, as well as The Treasure of the Lost Land. Oh, okay. I I feel like they're most, they they have to mostly be on there. When I'm bored later on tonight, I'm going to look up all of the movies that Disney Toon made and uh, go through them all and see what's on Disney Plus. It'll be too late for this episode, but that's what I'm going to (laughs) do. All righty. So, um, well, folks might be wondering, why are we doing an archived episode instead of a new, um, you know, new content? And the reason I, I bring this up, because a lot of you knew my wife, Carol, who passed away a little over four years ago. Well, her mother passed away um, just a, a couple of days ago from this recording. And so I, she had been in the hospital for a while. She had had a couple of strokes and then some other things um, set in, other medical issues that they could not combat. And so um, so I was gone like all weekend, you know, visiting with her and the family. And then, um, and then she, I, I got word that she passed um, yesterday. So um, anyway, so that's why. So if you could keep her, her name's Pat Vella, Patricia Vella, her and, and our family in your prayers. Um, I would, um, I will appreciate it. So, but she's the good thing is, you know, we all had a chance to say goodbye. She is at peace. I firmly believe she is reunited with Carol and many other people, you know, in our family who have, who have passed before her. So anyway, so, so, and Craig, we've been talking about the Diz event on the show from August 4th to 6th, the Diz Dreams Unlimited Travel event. So um, I don't know if I've asked you and last time you're here, are you planning on being at that event? I Yes, I will be at that event. Uh, I don't know how many days I'll be there before or after. I've not gotten to airfare or anything like that yet. Uh, Wait till you see airfare. It's shocking. It is shocking. (laughs) And it's probably going to be even more expensive for me because i'm i i do not have first class money but uh kylie and rory are coming out and i know that uh she's not going to want to nurse (laughs) with in a in a row with uh, another person potentially being there so i think she's gonna force me to splurge this time around but i how luxurious uh, listen, I have like 500,000 sky miles from all the trips I've gone on with the company. So I, it's, I like to say that the Diz paid for it <laughs> by sending me places over the years and, and letting me keep all the sky miles with it. So, uh, yeah, it's I, I, cause I don't have the money for it, but uh, luckily those miles come in handy just when you need them. Yeah, that's true. Good. Well, I look forward to seeing you there. We'll have a little yeah. connecting with Walt reunion. Yeah, and uh, I'm ex- I, I don't. I think the news came out after the last episode you put out, but I know we uh, got dealt some bad news with it. That of course the party's taking place. The the extra party that's happening after hours in Pixar place. Uh, it's was supposed to include Toy Story Midway Mania, but unfortunately that attraction's going under refurbishment. So John Mm -hmm. is uh, in talks with Disney right now to see what they can throw in for our group now, since that was technically part of it and then being pulled away. So he's working his magic. I know he said that's like the make or break for someone, uh, anyone out there who was like, nope, 
that was the one thing I cared about and now I don't want to go, you can reach out to him, John at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com for a refund, but he is working at finding something to replace. John is always good about that. He always brings a little magic and surprises into everything that he plans. Yeah. And honestly, with John, with uh, I said it very poorly on the show earlier in the week, talked about adversity with John. But uh, it's it's true that when there's moments like uh, this, where something like this is happening, that's unexpected, uh, since there is time before the party, he's going to use that to his advantage and say, well, I know you were we were going to do that, but can we make this and that happen instead? And usually he uh, is able to take advantage of that leverage. So oh, I'm holding okay. out hope that it's like, oh, you know, we are supposed to have Toy Story Mania, but now we get uh, two different attractions somewhere else. Or, or maybe they'll, fun. yeah, it'd be nice if they could open up Cars Land or the Marvel Avengers Campus. I, I, I doubt that's happening, but <laughs> that would be the dream. Uh, or Worlds of Color private show, you know. That's <laughs> what I was thinking. I'm like, you know what? When you had it up, it's just really a lot of fountains, some fire effects. It's our group. Uh, maybe when it all said and done that the amount of staff they need to run Toy Story Mania for the night, that would even out with how much it costs to put on that show. I'm not sure, but yeah, that's that's what I'd hold my fingers. Yeah, crossed. that would be I wonderful. Would love to see World of Color one uh, with, you know, a very <laughs> tiny group in that park. <laughs> mm-hmm. That would be cool. Yeah. So have you it's seen? It's probably not going to happen. I just no. need to make that very clear. Yeah, <laughs> we don't know. Clear. We have no clue. Craig and Michael said on Connecting with Walt that John was getting World of Color 1. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? So, okay. And have you seen any recent films lately? Talk about oh. you heard Mary Jo and I critiqued Little Mermaid a while back. Uh, I uh, That's the only Disney one that I saw. I haven't made it to Elemental yet. Uh, I was, I just, so I've kind of talked on the show before, like my favorite theater in Orlando is the Dolby theater at Disney Springs. And, (laughs) uh, right now, since elemental came out, they've only had one showing a day of it in the Dolby theater at noon, which that basically makes it completely impossible (laughs) during the work week. I can't go to it. And then, uh, with it being father's day this past weekend that I, I probably could have told Kylie, hey, for Father's Day, I want to go see a movie alone. Uh, (laughs) And I could have snuck out, but uh, I didn't. So I'm hoping to see it maybe this upcoming weekend. But yeah, just just a little mermaid. And yeah. And what did you enjoy it? Is it better than Pinocchio, the remake? Uh, It's (laughs) of course, it's better than Pinocchio. I I am now still confident as I've re-listened to the songs on the soundtrack my big thing for it is I don't think it should have been a musical. I thought Halle Bailey's an amazing singer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just thought that the the besides part of your world that the uh, the nude renditions of the songs like Under the Sea and Kiss the Girl, I thought they were very inferior to the original animated I feature. And then on top of that too, like none of the new songs connected. I'm not, I'm not going to waste time talking about scuttlebutt, but even like the, <laughs> the Eric, I wish song, like for me, it just, it didn't need to be in there. It's you, you already, the actor was good enough and the script was good enough that you didn't need that song for him to like 
say again how he felt. And the same thing went for the Halle Bailey song where, you know, she's somehow singing with hearing the singing in her head as she's mm-hmm. moving around and explaining everything that she's feeling and thinking. And I'm like, she is so talented as an actress that her eyes are literally telling the story in her body language. You don't need the song that's explaining what she does, especially when that song like just kind of sounds like a mashup of one of the songs from in the Heights with the uh, waiting on a miracle from Encanto, which I mean, it is when so makes sense that he's just kind of reusing his, his music, but it just, none of those new songs didn't add to me. The old songs didn't connect with me. So I'm like really part of your world. Like that's technically doesn't, need to happen either and it could have just been a straight a straight movie all the way through and you would have cut probably 20 to 30 minutes off the runtime with that and you would have had a nice solid movie and then part of your world could have been the credits song it just handled it like that but yeah well at um, least it would have been different than doing almost a scene for scene from um and and i don't care and i already rehashed i don't want to rehash it all but you know i don't care for the photorealistic animals because they're expressionless yeah and i i mean that goes without being said like i don't i I, anyone who enjoyed that like i'm happy for you but it just it was visually ugly for me and Mm -hmm. i did not i i thought javier bardem was so so just stale as as uh triton like it, it didn't seem like he wanted to be there <laughs> and his it cg like, wasn't very good it was very inconsistent it wasn't and yeah. like with melissa mccarthy she's fine but she just to me she was just doing an impression of ursula where everyone yeah. else minus javier bardem felt like they were they were trying to add depth to characters that really weren't that fleshed out in the original animated feature, because that is, it's just so, so fast paced and there's a lot left to be explored with the characters. And I felt like everyone like added depth to themselves and it's like, okay, you're, you're all these characters are justifying why they should be in the movie and why they should get more screen time. And then with Ursula, it was just like, okay, you're just doing an impression of Pat Carroll. And Mm -hmm. I, not what i want to see i don't yeah. i don't want i didn't want them to hire you just because you're like oh well you know what you kind of look like ursula so we'll make you ursula and i feel like that's what they actually did but it's you yeah. know minor i, I thought she did a good job i thought she did a good job of you know mimicking pat carroll's version of ursula but um yeah like i've seen this on the stage um the musical yeah. and ursula's a different character she's much more um well, oily, but she's, she is actually, um, slim and it's a different, completely different character in a way. So they sort of reinterpreted her. She's a little more glamorous, but in an oily, oozy, creepy way. Yeah. You know, and so, so at least they did a different take on her for the, um, stage version of the film. Yeah. yeah. So. But I, it, ultimately, it's it's in the middle for me with the Disney, mm-hmm. uh, the with the Disney remakes. It's it's closer to the top, uh, the top tiers with Cinderella and Pete's Dragon and the ones that I've talked about before that I enjoy more. But it's not, it, it didn't, you know, it did not over 
take Cinderella as the best one, but it's certainly also not Pinocchio and some of the uh, the the awful worst ones that should have never existed. Yeah, yeah. Well, they have a lot more coming down the pipe of these remakes. Oh, and Lilo so, and Stitch and Hercules and Moana. And, yeah, and the list uh, on and on. I mean, oh it's my gosh, but Moana's the one that's overdue. I mean, it's what it's been out since 2016 and it doesn't have a live action remake yet. Are you being sarcastic? Just a little bit, but you know what? if the rock wants to be a part of it, then you got to do it before he ages out. So I, I suppose so. Yeah. So, Oh, you know, at the last destination D um, that was in Florida, uh, you know, we, they, they promised us all an Amazon echo. And through a very long process, I finally got mine. And it was a challenge because uh, my friend Rob, who lives in Canada, he got into the queue before I did. So he bought me a ticket. Well, because it had a Canadian address, they weren't going to, they don't send the Echo to anyone outside of the US, which I think is lousy, but I'm, there's probably some legalities or something with that. Yeah. But, um, but then, but I said, wait, I live in the U.S. I should get mine. And finally, um, with Rob and I both sort of writing them, I got it. And so, and I don't do too much with it. But, um, but then Hello Disney rolled out. Yeah, and, I just got my email for that. Yeah. So I, um, so I, I thought, okay, I'll check it out. And I thought, oh, it's a $6 subscription a year. That's not bad. Well, then when I tried to subscribe, it said I was already subscribed. So I don't quite know how that happened. Uh, maybe but, it took so long for you to get yours that they were able to like just uh, attach it right away. Because I, I, I just got my email, I think, yesterday or the day before that had my code mm-hmm. to get the year free for uh for hey disney i haven't activated it yet but we use we honestly only use ours for uh, a baby monitor right now <laughs> so i use um, mine for um uh you know finding out the weather oh shopping list i love the shopping list um where i can just say you know hey uh, hey alexa add eggs to my shopping list and then i look at then i just have it on my phone the list and um so i like that and then I'll play music through it. The speakers are remarkably good. Yeah. On that yeah, little dinky thing. Yeah, that's yeah. why we decided to use it for a baby monitor. I mean, we have a we already had a camera in the the nursery anyways, and then we're like, okay, well we gotta invest in one of the you know, a, 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 just an audio monitor and the sound comes through on the on the echo so well that we're like, okay, we don't even need one. We just yeah. keep that running in the background, and then we have it to listen to. But I have had fun with the Hey Disney. Like, if you say, "Good mor- hey, Disney, good morning, they have a character greeting. If I asked for the weather the other day, because we're having a weird summer, we might have the coolest summer in, they said, 28 years this year. Uh, was, last year we had the hottest in like 50 years. And, yeah, I was um, going to say it was. Uh, I wish it would have been cold when I was there in uh, in mid July. That would have yeah. been perfect. Yeah, we've not hit triple digits yet. But when I asked about the weather, it was a you have to invest a little time if you ask it about the weather. But <laughs> it was a whole this whole little thing with the frozen characters. And, you know, their voices. And I, it was actually really entertaining. 
And, uh, and you can say, hey, Disney, good night. And the characters say good night. But then they have these soundscapes. So I thought they have a Tiana's, Tiana's Bayou one. Listen to that. And it's sort of basically isn't quite what I expected, but it's so it's basically it'll be sounds of like the bayou. And then you'll hear like people eating in a restaurant with some music. And then you're basically riding the streetcar. You hear that as you like, as if you're going through the streets of New Orleans. And anyway, so it's different sounds like that. I thought it would be more like orchestral music from the movie, but it was interesting. So they have a star Wars one and they have all kinds. And so you can tell it to play a specific one or just tell it to surprise you. Yeah. I I like those. I mean, as a visual Mm -hmm. sense, like I don't ever put those on my TV when they have those, uh, like I know they have some on Disney plus, but I, I like listening to those in the background. Sometimes it's just like hearing the sound that like you can, you can picture exactly what they want you to just by hearing the sounds of the atmosphere mm-hmm. of the areas. Mm-hmm. Like I, I like that. It just yeah. so, helps put me in a certain headspace. Yeah. So th- it's fun. I didn't think I would ever like Alexa and I don't do a lot with it, but um, you know, but th- it's fun. The Hello Disney thing is fun too. Oh. So any tell, you also have it tell you a story. So you could have it tell a story to Rory one night if you your voice is sore or something oh that's that's the dream he can't sit still <laughs> long enough to look at books right now so i know he's still on the little early side for it but uh, he'll he'll listen to audiobooks yeah well there you go this might be just a trick for him yeah it's <laughs> hopefully i'll be able to find twenty thousand leagues under the sea because before we started recording michael and i were joking that uh that book apparently is such a slog to get through that i'm i'm hoping i can find a an audio book of it where James Mason, <laughs> our very favorite Captain Nemo, did all the uh, the reading for it. But I just don't think that exists. No, probably not. Unless somebody, well, you know, with AI, someday it might. <laughs> I'll tell you who's going to do it. It's going to be me. I'm quitting my job. You'll never hear from me again. <laughs> <laughs> that might. There's your million dollar idea. Cut me in on it. <laughs> okay. Deal. All right. Well, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? Uh, as always, you can find me on the shows I'm on, the Diz Unplugged Podcast Network. Uh, you can find me on social media, uh, at Telecluster, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And then you can email me, Craig, at Disney Info, if you ever have any questions or concerns. But what about you, Michael? You can send me messages at Michael Bowling at DisneyInfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, Michael Bowling dash connecting with Walt. Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at connecting Walt. Before I run through my, my ending spiel here, I always get inquiries, Craig, where are the links, the show note links? Because people say they can't find them. Uh, it's, it should be literally in whatever podcast app you listen to. So it's, if the hyperlinks aren't working, then I can look into that. But yeah, um, it's, we, we don't have our show notes page anymore like we used to back in the day on Diz Unplugged. Uh, that was abandoned a long time ago. Not by my choice. I just need to put that out there. <laughs> 
it was it was not my choice. Uh, but most podcast applications anymore allow you uh, to to have hyperlinks in with the show description. So it should be in there. But like a lot of podcasts, if you have it just set to play up next, uh, you're not you're not getting the show description. You kind of have to you have to usually like on Apple podcasts, I believe you, uh, you know, you would have to go to like whatever episode you're listening to. And then they usually have like the go to episode. And then if you kind of scroll up a little bit, that's where you'll see the uh the actual um, the description of the episode mm-hmm. and then and then links as well too and I have a link in the in the show each week so uh, it's that's the best place to find it okay yeah. But yeah, that's right if it's I not working it. let me know and I can mm-hmm. I can fix it it works it works on the podcast app that I use but it might not work for everyone so I need to be able to investigate that and I don't know what everyone uses for podcast apps so i don't i don't spend all my time downloading random apps and seeing if stuff like that works mm-hmm. okay well thank you so i hope that um helps folks out there who want to hear some of the archive the older episodes but if you'd like to or, or also to um just see the, the articles and all that that i i use on the show I definitely, I just, sorry to interrupt you. I just checked on Apple Podcasts, at least. That's the main one I use. And it 100% works um, (laughs) on that one. So like your Disneyland history segments, I just clicked on that and was taken to the link on Disboards where all your segments are. And so it's working on that, at least. But any other ones, let me know. I'll look into it. Okay, great. Thank you. If you would like to listen to more shows, as we're talking about on the History of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at disneyunplugged.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. 